Well, good morning. Everybody doing well today? Did you have a good missions day yesterday? I'm sure it was great. I love missions. Served uh, two and a half years in Africa, in Kenya, uh, teaching at a university there, and uh, got to know the folks really well. They, the students are, are, are precious to me. Uh, that was, came back 16 years ago, um, but um, uh, it's been a, a wonderful time uh, that we were there, and, and uh, they're, they're still like family to me. Um, we're friends on Facebook, many of them, uh, students, my graduates, and uh, they're doing all kinds of things. Uh, they are uh, pastors and church planters and, and uh, doing amazing things. I can see pictures of their kids now, their, their families, and, and watching them grow old, I guess you might say, uh, has been a blessing. So, uh, so I have a, a heart for missions. Also spent uh, about two years of my life, six or eight weeks at a time in Jordan. Uh, I'm an archaeologist also and uh, have been digging in Moabite country, which the Book of Ruth is very special to me because of that. Uh, but um, been uh, spent a lot of time there and have a lot of good friends in Jordan. And yes, they are Muslims, and, but they know who I am. And we have had many good conversations about Isa which is the Arabic name word for Jesus, and uh, it's just uh, a blessing to me. And so I love being overseas, I love being with people, and uh, helping them know Jesus as much as through what I do as what I say. And that is really the best witness that we have. Uh, We can say a lot of things, but if our life doesn't match what we say, uh, it's not going to be effective. And so, really, the lessons we're learning about God's chesed, his his love, is God's actions. And then those actions are what he expects from us. If he shows us this tender, loving mercy, we should show it to others. And that we should should live a life, and and I don't like the shoulds, I'm not a should guy. But clearly the Bible teaches us that we should reflect Christ, right? We should reflect God's love. And Jesus is the epitome of this chesed love, of this tender loving mercy, of this kindness, of this grace, of this willing to sacrifice whatever it takes for someone to know what love truly is. And that should be the life that we live. And so uh, I pray that uh, as we've gone through these, this, this is our mid, midpoint, our, fifth, our f- fifth lesson today. We have four more after this. And uh, at this point, I pray that uh, you, you have gotten a heart of what these lessons are about. That this is who God is. He has called us. He calls us to salvation. He calls us into relationship. He calls us into being with Him, being one with Him, as we talked about last time. And if we're one with Him, then our lives will begin to reflect more of Him. And that reflection should include this love of mercy, of kindness, of grace, which is something that we desperately need in our world today, is it not? I have seen, I hate to not be judgmental, but I'm being judgmental, I guess, but I've seen too many Christians be less than merciful the past year or so that have been very loud and very name-calling and very difficult and have really hurt their witness in that way. Why would I listen to you if you call me a scum? Why would I listen to you if you call me an animal? Why would I listen to you if you call me 
unlovable or worthless or whatever. And so we need to be aware that becoming Christ-like and becoming God-like and living in mercy and grace that He has given us requires us to also live in grace and mercy to others, even if they hate our guts, even if they believe everything opposite of what I believe, I still have to be Jesus to them. And that is something the world, our country needs greatly from the church today. Now that's, my, that's my soapbox today. But as we get into this story, this is a story that, that is scandalous. To the original audience, we think it's a beautiful story. It is. Ruth is a beautiful story. You all know the story of Ruth? Okay? It's a beautiful story of, of grace and of love and of kindness and everything else. But for the world that this story is written in, it is scandalous. Scandalous. Because she was one of those people to the Israelites. She was one of those people who had no business here to those Israelites. Okay? So we need to see this in light of what it's trying to teach, not only us, but the original readers of who God truly is. Okay? Anything we need to pray about today? Everybody doing well? Let's pray for health. Yes? The, my allergies are, are kicking up. Uh, as the humidity, humidity goes up, so does the congestion and the coughing and that type of thing. And of course, in this day of COVID, it's not good to cough. So, uh, so uh, forgive me if I clear my voice or whatever, but it's simply allergies. My head is full today. So um, uh, pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you, God, for the stories of the Bible that show us who you are, but also can, reflects to us who we need to be in this world. So be with us today as we talk about this wonderful story of Ruth. We look just at a snippet of this story and see what is going on in this world, what is going on in the world of that time. And Lord, teach us what we need to know. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I encourage you to, uh, to follow along in your Bible. Um, if if uh, you know, I have a smartphone, you can look it up. I know we have Wi-Fi in here. Um, a lot of my students use their uh, app, Bible app on their phone and on their computers for class, uh, which seems kind of weird to me, uh, but that's what they do. But um, I encourage you to, to follow along. And I should have said that at the very beginning. Uh, I guess I kind of assumed you were. Uh, as far as the text, we haven't really read the text uh, together. I give you homework each week and ask you each day to ask you to read something beforehand. I realize busyness comes, you don't get a chance to do that. So I encourage you to, to, to read along because if we took the time to read these long passages, it would take too much time of our time. So I want you to follow along as we go, okay? So we're going to be looking at uh, Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 today. And just a couple of things we need to see. The story is set in the time of the judges, okay? It tells us the very first verse, tells us this is the story during the time of the judges. If you know this, the book of Judges, the very last verse says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the world in which this story takes place. 
that there is no basis of morality. Everybody's simply doing what they want. And really, it's a picture of chaos of what God meant to be an orderly community. It's not a pretty picture at all in the book of Judges. They have to cry out to God. They, they, they cry out to God. God would send a judge and would save them from their oppression. And everything was fine as long as that judge was alive. And as soon as the judge died, then they did evil in the eyes of the Lord all over again. It happened over and over, cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle, until the very last judge was the, probably the least, the most famous, Samson, but probably the least righteous person you ever want to know. He was a drinker. He was a womanizer. He was everything you could imagine. And actually save the people by pretty much committing suicide, crushing down the building on top of himself. Okay, so even the heroes were going down further and further and further in the story of Judges. And so this is the world in which the story takes place. And so we need to understand this perspective that there is no king in Israel. Okay, that's okay. All right. God doesn't really want a king. We'll, we see that in 1 Samuel. God says to Samuel, them asking for a king is not rejecting you, Samuel. It's rejecting me. Okay? But he did expect them to, to have God as their king. Did expect them to follow life the way God had told them to live in the covenant law. So each tribe was on their own. There was no central leadership. And again, this chaotic time is the story setting for the story. So the key characters, we have Naomi in chapter 1. We're told Naomi and her husband and two sons. There's a huge famine in the land. And of course, there's no support system. Every tribe was doing their own thing. Within the tribe, each clan was doing their own thing. Within the clan, each family was doing their own thing. And so there was no support system. And so she and her husband and their two boys move over across. They move. Here's Bethlehem. Picture in your mind. Okay, here's Bethlehem over here in Israel. They come down, they go way down into the Jordan Valley, cross over the Jordan River, rise up, climb up the, the hillside of, of, of Moab, go up onto the plains where the, where the grain fields are. They still are today. In fact, the Bedouin reap grain the same way they did in Ruth's time. They, they break it off by hand, they stack it up in sheaves, they throw it up in the air to... To, to sift the, the grain from the chaff, the whole bit, exactly the same, okay? So, you, so in my mind, I can picture it very well of what it looks like. And so they move over there, and, and because there is no food in Bethlehem, they move over there, there's plenty of, of food there. And so they settle in, their sons marry Moabite women, which is a scandalous thing because in Deuteronomy it says the Moabites are, well, first we have the story in Genesis where the Moabites come from, which we'll talk about in just a minute, but this is the story of Lot and his daughters after the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the burning of everything and him getting drunk and his daughter sleeping with him and one of the daughters gives birth to the Moabites. Okay, so the ancestral relationships, the Moabites were considered ugly and nasty and less than and everything else and they were considered the enemy. So they marry these, these Moabite uh, girls, and her husband and both of her sons die. And so she is a widow, and the two girls are widows. And so she returns to, decides to return to, to Bethlehem. 
Why? Because she heard that the famine is over. She has no husband. She wants to go back to at least where she might have some family close around. So she decides to go and tells her daughters-in-law to go home to your fathers, go home to where they are, to, to where you belong. And the fact is, in the ancient world, when you're, once you're a widow, it's very hard to get remarried. In fact, most widows never do because they're considered to be spoiled, meaning that they've already had relations. And so they were not valuable in society to men. And so most widows were rejected for spouses, which again shows the story of Ruth and Boaz as something different and even scandalous. So at the end of the chapter, uh, Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, where I will stay. I will worship your, who your God will be my God. You know, the whole bit, the thing that sometimes we read, we hear at weddings, you know, talking about this is what we're going to do. We're going to stay together. Wherever you go, I will be with you. Those types of things. And so uh, at the end of chapter one, defines the emptiness and Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Emptiness, bitterness. Call me lost because I have nothing left. God has taken it all from me. And so this is how it ends. Chapter 1 ends. Then we get into ch- to, to Ruth's story, which really begins in chapter 2. We, we are introduced to her. We have the sign of her saying, I'm going to stay with you. But then chapter 2 really deals with Ruth's story. She's a Moabite widow of an Israelite, which gives her, she actually has three strikes against her in the society. Number one, she is a woman. Women have no rights. Nimen, women are used. They are tools to be used to produce children, particularly sons. That's what women were for. Second to that was to work in the fields to collect grain and then cook the grain. Okay? To fix the grain. That was their jobs. They really had no rights in society. So she was a woman. She was a widow, like I mentioned before. Widows were despised by men because they had already been spoiled sexually by another husband. So they were not considered valuable. And third, she was a Moabite in Israel. Deuteronomy says that a Moabite is not allowed in the assembly of Israel. Up to the 10th generation, they're not allowed in Israel's assembly. And here she is living in an Israelite city, a widow and a woman. She is the bottom of the totem pole of that town, as far as society says. Okay? Everybody tracking with me? All right. So again, widows were, uh, women had few rights in society. Widows were independent on extended family or charity, but often ended up in service as slaves. Widows would have to sell themselves to someone to work in their household to be able to survive. Okay? That's how desperate it was. If they did not have kin, if they did not have a family to help them or take care of them, they often had to sell themselves into slavery. 
Ruth is a central character in the story, which is a scandal to proper Israelites. Ruth, the author, while the author, the name of the book is Ruth. There's only two books in the Bible named after women. Remember what the other one is? Esther. Ruth and Esther. Ruth, a Moabite, for crying out loud. Why is she the name of the book? A proper Israelite would be offended by this story. Offended by it. It confronts the very basis of what they think is truth. But God says otherwise. Thank God. Yes? What the world says is truth, God says otherwise. Amen. Yes? So Ruth is the center central character in the story. Again, in chapter 1, she gives a statement of faith, a statement of faith of a Moabite. I will go where you go. Your God will be my God. That's a statement of faith that many Israelites would not give at this time. It was about me. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So Ruth is an amazing figure in this story. Then we have Boaz. Boaz is a kinsman of Naomi in Bethlehem. A kinsman is a distant relative, a relative that is, uh, that is a clear relative but is not part of the nuclear family. Okay? So a cousin or an uncle or something like that. All right? So a kinsman uh, of Naomi. He is wealthy. He has fields. He has all kinds of fields. He has workers that work for him. Uh, he is wealthy. He is respected. People listen to what he has to say, and he is righteous. He does the right thing. He does everything right in this story. In many ways, he could be the, the focus of this story. In many ways, he could be the hero of the story. But the author could have focused on him as the hero. In many ways, he is the hero. Yet Boaz and the author bring focus upon Ruth rather than themselves. Boaz shows favor to Ruth more than building up his own stature for what he does for her. He's always praising Ruth, and Ruth is always praised by others in the story rather than Boaz being praised for what he has done, except for the thanks that Naomi and Ruth give him. So Boaz is playing the role in this story of a redeemer, but also one who is an acceptor of the unordinary. He's one who brings in scandal for the purpose of helping people grow in understanding. He is a goel. That's a Hebrew word, goel. Uh, the word, the name Abigail. Any Abigails in here? Y'all know Abigail and know an Abigail? You ever heard that name? Yes. Abby. Ab means father. The I at the end means my, my father is my redeemer, is the name. That's what Abigail means. So he's a kinsman redeemer, is a person who, as the nearest relative of another, is charged with the duty of restoring the rights of another and avenging his or her wrongs. One duty of the Goel was to redeem or purchase back a relative who had been sold into slavery. And so he is named a goel in the story in the Hebrew. 
He is called a kinsman redeemer. Sometimes it's translated guardian redeemer, whatever you want to call it. But it's someone who feels responsible to take care of these people. Now, it's only really responsible for Naomi, not Ruth. Only for Naomi, for blood relation, okay? The scandal, Israel and Moab were bitter enemies, as I said before. Moab's origins, given the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter, uh, that, uh, you know, his, Lot's wife turned to, to salt when she looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah as the flames were coming down. Uh, her, the, the, his daughter's husband stayed in Gomorrah and were, were burned up. And they said, we will never have any children. Why? Because a widow is rejected by men. And so they get their father drunk. They sleep with him. And they both get pregnant. And one gives birth to the sons of Ammon, the Ammonites, and the next other one gives birth to a son named Moab, which literally means from the father, from the father. And so the Ammonites and the Moabites had the scandalous background to them in Israelite history and therefore are always the enemies in the stories until something happens. One individual changes everything, and we'll see what happens. Ruth's ethnicity fills the story. Boaz mentions twice that she is a Moabite. The author, four times that she's a Moabite. A servant mentioned it, that she is a Moabite twice. And there's a, an understanding that she is an outsider. She is not one of us. She is a stranger, if you will, in this book. Again, Deuteronomy 23, 4 through 7 forbids a Moabite and the Israelite assembly to the 10th generation. The story of Ruth seems to ignore this command. The result, excuse me, the result of the story is even more scandalous in this regard, as we will see that her being part of the story and being the hero, putting her name into a certain position in history was scandalous to the Israelites, scandalous to the Jews. So we get into chapter 2, and we see in the first seven verses of chapter 2 that Ruth reveals chesed, this chesed love to Naomi. I just put down some of the words that they say in the text. Uh, The next section is a conversation that we'll, we'll look at, but Ruth's statement here is important. Please let me go and glean from the fields of, of one in whose eyes I find grace. She is hoping to find grace. She's hoping to find mercy. She's hoping to find favor in the eyes of someone in a world where she is an outsider. What kind of faith does that take? What kind of faith does that take? Say so you move to a new town. And you move into a section of town that is a totally different ethnicity, ethnicity than you. And you move into a place where you are despised through general culture of that area. You are despised as a person that you cannot be trusted. And yet you know that if you don't do something, your mother-in-law is going to starve to death. So you say to your mother-in-law, 
please let me go. Her mother probably told her, be careful. You're a Moabite. Be careful. Please let me go and glean from the fields. Please let me go. She is putting herself on the line. She is showing grace and mercy to her mother-in-law by wanting to go out into a place where she could be scorned, mocked, and even abused. And so uh, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 tells us why, what she's talking about. It says that when you collect the grain, when you glean your grain from your fields, leave the corners alone. Okay, don't harvest the entire acre, but leave the corners alone. Let the stalks remain. And anything you drop as you take it up, leave it there for the poor. So they can come and glean that wheat on the corners and go through the fields and find food to eat for their families. So that's the commandment that we have in Leviticus 19. Leave extra out there for those who don't have anything. And so she's expecting that to be there for them. So she goes out. Now again, God is not mentioned in the story, but Providence finds Ruth at the field of Boaz. When Boaz is mentioned, Ruth and Naomi don't even know about him. She, uh, Naomi knows about him, but she doesn't even think about him. But he has not been mentioned before. So she finds herself at the field of Boaz. She gathers all day in the field. In his praise, Boaz walks up and says, Who is this young woman? And the servant, the, the worker says, This is the Moabite who lives with Naomi, who came from Moab. And they praise her, and she has worked all day long without stop to gather grain, to gather grain. And they praise her for this. Then in verses 8 through 16, we see chesed love shown to Ruth by Boaz. This is, we're going to go through a conversation here, so stick with me. Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the women. I have told the, man, the, the, the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So here is a stranger, this Moabite, who was told to go work with the women in the field. And the women followed up after the men to pick up what was left. Okay, leaving some, but picking up what is left. And so he actually hires her in some way to work for him. To work for him. And so she would go and work in the field, and she would, she would gather up the stuff, and then he would let her keep what she gathers to take home. Ruth the Boaz, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz to Ruth, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Is that not a picture of grace? 
is not out of picture of mercy, of, of, of this is a foreigner, this is a Moabite, and you have left your family and you have willingly come to protect your mother-in-law in this way. Ruth the Boaz, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. She is saying, I know that as a Moabite, I am not as respected as your servants are. I am lower than a slave in your family. And yet you've shown me favor. You've shown me respect. You've shown me grace. You've shown me truth. You've shown me hope. You've shown me life. You've given me life in my soul because I am no longer feeling like a stranger, no longer feeling like one who does not belong. I feel like I am safe in this place. I feel like I belong in this field. I feel like I belong with you because you have made me welcome even though I don't deserve it. Is that not what God does for us? By bringing us into the family of God, though we are so far from deserving it, so far from, from, from deserving God's grace, so far from deserving anything that he gives us, but he gives it freely to make us feel welcome, to make us know that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Boaz to Ruth, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. He even feeds her. He has her sit down and eat with the men. Scandalous. Scandalous. First off, she's a woman. Second off, she's a foreigner. Third, she's a widower. A widow. Scandalous. Boaz to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles. Leave them for her to pick up and do not rebuke her. This is grace. This is grace. Boaz provides chesed, love to Naomi, Ruth, and the deceased husbands just by his actions. Ruth returned to Naomi with plentiful grain and a full stomach. She eats. She's filled up. We're told that she's able to gather a whole ephah. We don't know how much that is, but it was a large amount. She had to haul it, is a word that is used, meaning she had to burden with it. She had to fight with it. She had so much to get back home. And so she had plentiful grain, a full stomach, and Naomi says to Ruth, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth said to Naomi, the name of the man I worked for with today and worked with today is Boaz. Naomi says, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. The actions he gave to Ruth was actually blessings to the deceased, deceased husbands. The husbands could no longer take care of their women. By doing what he does, Boaz is blessing even the deceased husbands. When 
the body of believers, when we as believers help someone who has no one to help them, a widow, a widow or a widower, whoever it is, we are blessing not only them, but those who are no longer there with them. I know that, that uh, you know, my da- dad, my father, passed away when he was 60 years old. He uh, had a heart attack, had surgery. I lived in Kentucky. He lived in Colorado. They, my family lived in Colorado. I had to get out there in time before the surgery started. I had to get a chance to see him. Surgery was 11 hours long. Found out he had so many problems they couldn't fix it. He survived for two days. He was awake for about this much time and I could actually talk to him. And he said to me, take care of your mama. That's all I care about. Take care of your mama. And then he passed. So I tried my best to honor him by being a good son. I tried my best to honor his life by being a good son. That was 1992. It was a long time ago. My mom's now 89 years old. I'm still trying to do my best. Still trying to do my best to take care of her, to make sure she has what she needs because I want to bless my father along with my, my mom. I want, to, I, want to, I, want to, I want to be a Goel in some way, a kinsman redeemer in some way. This is the object of this story. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Ruth says, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. And Naomi says, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Why? Because you're a foreigner. You're a widow. You're a woman with no rights. So he is protecting you. He is with you through this time. So the rest of the story, Boaz redeems Naomi's inheritance. We know this story pretty well, I think. Uh, There was another relative who was closer, who had the rights of inheritance of all that belonged to Naomi's husband, including some fields and different things. Uh, And and so when he was approached by Boaz, do you want to redeem uh, Naomi, and he says, sure. And he says, well, if you want to redeem Naomi, you need to also then marry Ruth. And he says, oh, no. I got enough wives in my life. Okay, I don't need that. And then there's probably a little bit of prejudice saying, I'm not going to marry any one of those people. No. So he says, okay, I'll do it. Let's make a deal. So they go down to the gates, to the gates of the city. And here's a, better check my time, sorry. Oh, we're good. So here, here's a little archaeological uh, information for you, historical background. Uh, the Bible talks about in the Old Testament that there should be justice in the gates. It's mentioned several times. Let there be justice in the gates. 
We've always thought that that meant simply let there be justice within the city gates, within the city. Let there be justice within the community. But literally, we have found in archaeology that in the gates, the gate complexes of, of most towns had rooms in these gates. There were, there were like four or six rooms in a gate complex. One of those had benches lined around it where all the elders of the city would come each day and sit there and you brought your complaints and you brought your cases and you brought your arguments to them for judgment. And so literally, God says, let there be justice in the gate. In the gate. Who knew? Who knew? So they go to the gate, to the elders in the gate. And they make the deal and they do the good thing of uh, he takes off a sandal and gives it to the guy and does the whole thing with the arm, hand behind, underneath the thigh and all the stuff that we have no idea what they're talking about, but that's what they did to finish a deal. And then he marries Ruth and they have a son and his name is Obed, which is Hebrew for servant. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of David. So all of a sudden we have this foreigner who has no rights, no belong, does not belong in Bethlehem whatsoever, living in Bethlehem. She has no rights whatsoever as a Moabite, no rights whatsoever as a widow, no rights whatsoever as a woman who is now the grandmother of King David. That's scandalous. Scandalous. By law, David should never be allowed to go into the temple. Tenth generation, right? Anyone with no Moabite blood should not be even allowed into the assembly of Israel. This confronts the prejudice of Israel's thinking. This confronts the issues of where does forgiveness, where does grace come into law? Where does grace, where does, where does love, where does, where does peace, where does mercy, where does all the things that we know as salvation and as, Christian, as Christians, where does it come into in relationship to law? According to law, I don't deserve salvation. I mean, Israelite law, by the time Jesus came, comes along, they have written over 600 laws simply of how to keep the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. You can only walk so far. You can only do this. You have to do this. You can have to do this. To try to keep the holy, keep it holy, it becomes, you go to the old city of Jerusalem today and you go through the Jewish sector, you'll find a bench every so many feet apart. Why? Because on the Sabbath you can only walk that far. So if you want to get somewhere, you just go, walk that far and sit on the bench for five minutes. Then you get up and walk another and sit on the bench for five minutes. I mean, that's how legalistic it became. I cannot keep those laws. Therefore, I am not worthy of salvation if it's all legalism. Are any of us? Paul tells us the law really brings death. 
or grace. We find out we cannot be good enough, and so we become dependent upon a Savior. And so this is the story that we have here. Ruth comes into the story totally dependent, totally dependent, knowing she's going into a situation where she had no rights, no position, no way of doing anything or accomplishing anything whatsoever, totally dependent upon Naomi to be that buffer between this people group who hated her guts as a Moabite and someone that could be be, be a, a person that could help her adjust, and it turns out to be Ruth, who is the one who takes care of her mother-in-law. And so it just really turns everything upside down. A Moabite revealed chesed love to her widowed mother-in-law, through, though a widow herself. Through this, Ruth became part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Go to the New Testament, and there she is. There she is. Is that amazing? Isn't that incredible? Is, is, this, is this too simple for us? Is it too simple for us to, to realize the scandal of salvation? The scandal of being in the lineage of Jesus as Christians, we are, right, the family of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're, we, are, we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We're in the lineage. Do we belong in the lineage of Jesus? Do we belong to be listed in the book of life in the lineage of Jesus Christ? In many ways, if you take the lineage of Jesus Christ we see in the New Testament, it runs through to Jesus, but then you go through and you find every name of those who have come to know Jesus as Savior, the lineage continues. We are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. We are born again, correct? If we are born again, we're part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. We have been part of this scandalous story of unworthy members of the family. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. So Ruth reveals what chesed, faithful love, and mercy looks like in direct contrast to the chaotic selfishness of the judges period among the chosen. Chesed love is not empty. Ruth, who began as an outsider, is praised for her faithful love and is remembered for all time for this faithfulness. Through Ruth's faithfulness, the emptiness of both Naomi and herself was made full again. Through faithfulness, the emptiness of our souls, by trusting and being and living and becoming all that God has called us to be, the emptiness that we feel is filled. And not only is it filled, but we can fill the emptiness in someone else's soul. We can fill the emptiness in someone else's life by revealing this love to them. It's a beautiful picture and a beautiful story. So any questions, any thoughts? I know it was a simple story today. Nothing groundbreaking.
Any thoughts? Anybody ever feel like Ruth? Yes. It's so important that you put Psalm 103 up there. Yes. The Lord had me write it first thing this morning in my notes. Good. We need to pray that back to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that's an interactive communication. That's right. Thank you for putting it up. Sure. Sure. So that is our text for tomorrow, is Psalm 103. I encourage you to read it uh, before tomorrow. There's a lot in there that really relates to everything we've talked about so far. In fact, in many ways, what we're doing, it builds upon each other. What we're looking at really builds upon each other. Okay, this is who God is. This is what God does for us. On the other side of it, that this, if we accept this love, then this is what it means to us in our way of life. You see, I, I always tell my class, and, I, and I've said this to, to district superintendents in the Church of Nazarene, and, and I've said it to a couple of our general superintendents of the Church of Nazarene, and at first they, they kind of look at me like, not really happy. But I think sometimes the worst thing we ever did was make holiness a doctrine. The doctrine of holiness is very important, but when you make something a doctrine, it's something you have to defend, something you're supposed to preach, becomes something that you talk about, becomes an event. You know, you, you got to come down the altar and get it. Uh, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, where throughout Scripture, holiness is a way of life. Holiness is a way of life. Holiness is being filled with the Spirit, being filled with God's love, perfect love, which is Hesed love, and let it flowing out of us every day, not in, okay, I am holy because I look like this, or I talk like this, or I live this legalistic way of life, but this is a holiness that I live a life like Jesus did. I want Christ in me to flow out of me. I surrender all of my own desires, all of my will, everything else. I'm willing to go where I don't, where I'm hated, where I'm not appreciated, where I have no rights whatsoever. I'm willing to go there, Lord, and be who you've called me to be to show your chesed love. And if I'm willing to do that, then God will bless our efforts. But we have to be willing and so we can't look at other people that are different than us and shake our heads. Because other people who are different than us and put out our arms. Put out our arms. This is the moral of this story. We see people who need to know the love of God. No matter how much they hate us, no matter how awful their actions are, no matter what they look like, I want to show you. I want to be Jesus for you. I want you to know Christ. I want you to know Christ crucified. I want you to know Christ as Savior. I want you to know the love that God has given me more than anything in the world. They'll cuss me, hate me, kick me. I'm not leaving because I love you. That's the story of Ruth. That's, I will not leave you. I will not. Well, let's pray. 
Dear Lord, we thank you for this day and thank you for being with us. I pray, Lord, you just be uh, with us the rest of this week. Lord, we're into the camp a uh, long ways, halfway. Uh, Lord, I know that many of us are tired and, and you know, it's, it's getting hotter. And, and Lord, there's so many distractions. And I pray, God, that you will, will cut through those distractions, Lord, and help us, Lord, to, to seek your face and to hear your voice. To speak to us. That, God, we won't look for emotion, Lord. We will look for you. Lord, that we won't seek uh, a moment where we feel good, but, God, that we will live a life of goodness. God, may your spirit be rich and real in our hearts, and may we surrender every bit of ourselves to you. We ask this thing in, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.